The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountains to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. <clears throat> that go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The Gospel of the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, you have caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Help us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them that encouraged and supported by your holy word, we may embrace and always hold fast the joyful hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please, why don't you take your seats. At the end of 1 Corinthians 15, this incredible chapter that speaks about the resurrection of Jesus, along with all of its implications and applications, the Apostle Paul says this as his last thought. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. That is the encouragement that I want us to have ringing in our minds as we come to Acts 16 today. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Now, I'm not preaching a sermon on labor because it's Labor Day. Uh, rather, next week we are beginning a series for the fall in the book of Philippians. And I love origin stories. And Acts chapter 16 is the origin story of how the gospel came to Philippi. And so this sermon serves as a little bit of a bridge from Jonah into uh, Philippians, uh, stopping at Philippi about 10 years before Paul originally wrote that letter. Now the book of Acts is the story of the continuation of all that Jesus began to do and teach after he was taken up to heaven. It's a story of the spread and advance of the word in the world. As the word spread, the kingdom of God grew. And the kingdom of God is always growing. We, Paul tells us about that in Colossians chapter 1, verse 6, that the gospel is growing all over the world. And as people spoke the word, taught the word, preached the word, and the word took root in people's hearts, they were saved and added to the people of God and to his kingdom. And what Luke wants us to see, what was taking place really was the work of God, that his gospel is for all people, and he wants us to be clear not only of what the gospel is, but how that gospel advances, so that we have confidence to take this same gospel into the time and spaces that we now occupy, in the same world, to your workplace, to my neighborhood, to your family. 
And so let me draw your attention to a couple of things that takes place in this story. Beginning at verse 6, we notice firstly that the gospel advances under Jesus' direction. Verses 6 to 10. Uh, If Paul and Silas had been able to execute their own plan, they would have gone back and visited the churches that they had already planted and continued to preach the word in the province of Asia. But God intervened. In verse 6, we're told that the Holy Spirit kept them from preaching the word. And again in verse 7, the Spirit of Jesus would not let them or allow them to enter Bithynia. Jesus, by his Spirit, says no twice. After two no's, they realize that this is a hard past, and they need to take another road to a little place called Troas. And it's there that Paul has this vision of this man from Macedonia who is calling and asking them to come over and help. And so they have a meeting and decide that this is what God is calling them to do, and they set sail to preach the gospel in a new place. Now, the reason that this is super interesting is because of the two no's. No does not come to mind as the most encouraging word, but these two no's are actually hugely encouraging, and here's why. It's very easy to forget how active God's Spirit actually is. Acts reminds us that the Spirit is at work in our lives, in our world, and in the church, and in God's plan of salvation to the ends of the earth. The Spirit is deploying gospel witnesses all across the world, sending and calling, interrupting and connecting, preventing and protecting, always empowering and directing God's people. Sometimes the Spirit directs God's people by saying, no, not that, not there. We might attempt something really great from our point of view and the door just gets slammed shut in our face. But what we see here is that when that happens, it doesn't mean that God is not with us. After all, Jesus promised that he would be with us to the end of the age as we go about gospel ministry. It's not that God is not with us. It doesn't mean that the Spirit is not at work. It does not mean that we have failed in our Christian witness. It is an opportunity for us to say, Okay, God, that's clearly a no. What would you have us do? What is next? Lead me. Show me. God's Spirit can orchestrate a fantastic yes out of a hard no. For God's Spirit is not distracted or dismayed or discouraged. Jesus' Spirit sometimes says no because we need to suffer a little longer. Sometimes he says no because he's leading us to something far better but he is always at work in his people. So they have this vision and agree that this is what they're gonna do and they set sail and now their expectations are running high because they had these two no's and they had this amazing vision of a man calling them over to come and help. But the second thing that we notice is that the gospel advances, that the gospel advance is often unimpressive. Verses 11 to 16. The advance of the gospel is often unimpressive and goes by unnoticed. After the vision, they arrive in Philippi, and their reception is rather underwhelming. On the Sabbath day, they punch into Google Maps, local Jewish synagogue, push the direction button, and there's nothing. And so, uh, Paul's strategy had always been to start with those who at least knew something of the God of Israel, the God who had made promises about a coming Savior. 
So instead, because they can't find a synagogue, because there aren't even 10 Jewish men in the city of Philippi, they go outside the city gate to a place where they would expect to find someone who is at least a follower of the Lord. And as they're walking down, they would have seen some people and they went and they sat down with them. And Luke tells us that there were just some women who had gathered there. And from the description, it's likely that it was actually just all the, some women from the same household. A woman who we'll meet in a moment from Lydia's household, who was a businesswoman and rather successful. Can you see how unimpressive and unnoticed this is? This hardly meets the expectations of the vision that Paul had just had of the man calling to come and help them. When they arrive, there's no synagogue, no stadium full of people, no pulpit to preach from, no building. The little team just sits down outside of the city next to a river and talks to one family. Don't expect God's work to look impressive. But don't underestimate what God is doing with the unimpressive. We're told that the Lord opened Lydia's heart to respond to Paul's message, that she and the members of her household were baptized that day, and the fruit of the conversion is seen nearly immediately where she says, I want to show you hospitality. If you consider me a believer, a partner in the gospel, come and stay at my house. It might be unimpressive, but don't miss the journey that Lydia had been on. She had been on a theological journey. She had gone from a pagan to one who feared the God of Israel. Uh, she had been on a geographic journey from Thyatira to Philippi, to this place that God had brought Paul at this point in time in order that she might be saved. Outwardly, it might not look like much. Outwardly, it might look like very little is happening but God is powerfully at work as he opens people's hearts to respond to the gospel. These events that outwardly look unimpressive, uh, outwardly look insignificant, have massive impact. And so friends, do not despise the day of small things and remember that the angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner who repents. And so can I encourage you to go after the one, make a difference in the one, pray specifically for the one by name that the Lord might open their hearts. It doesn't sound nearly as impressive as praying for revival for the whole city, but usually God's work does not look impressive. Thirdly, we notice in verses 16 to 24 that the gospel advances amidst confusion chaos and misrepresentation. When the gospel advances, things get messy. Verse 16, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And at first reading, we think, hey, this isn't bad. The slave girl literally has the spirit of Python uh, Python was the snake associated with Greek mythology that was said to guard the temple of Apollo. Apollo was said to take the form of a snake and inspire the message uh, or messages through his follower. And so he was the great, uh, he was the source of this girl's fortune telling. But what we need to make sure we don't miss here is that the goal of all ancient religions was salvation. That ancient religions often referred to God as the most high. 
And so here Paul is going about speaking the gospel in Philippi and this slave girl with the spirit of Python is going behind him yelling, these are servants of the Most High who proclaim to you the way of salvation. That is to say, they're just saying the same thing that everybody else is saying. And so she misrepresents the gospel and confuses people as to what Paul is actually speaking about. Paul and Silas are here declaring that God himself has broken into history in the person of Jesus Christ, a historical figure to bring salvation through the forgiveness of sins by his death in our place on the cross, and that now you can be forgiven and brought into relationship with God and have access to him that was previously denied. He alone is Lord. He alone died. He alone has risen and defeated death. He alone can bring reconciliation with God. But everywhere they go in Philippi, a voice is shouting out, these are the same as the rest of everybody else who talks like this. And so it probably shouldn't surprise us when in verse 18, Paul has had enough and he becomes greatly annoyed and turns and says to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. Of course, once the spirit was dealt with, another problem arose. The slave girl's owners realized very quickly that her deliverance is going to be their financial ruin. And when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, verse 19, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And now look what they do, what they do is they continue to misrepresent the events. And when they brought them to the magistrates, verse 20, they said, these men are Jews. They are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Uh, one commentator puts it like this. They maneuver for social advantage using labeling to heighten social boundaries. Neither of these accusations are true. Yes, they are Jews, but they're not promoting Jewish religion. And Paul and Silas certainly are not advocating practices that are illegal for Romans to pursue. They're not a threat to the state. They're not a threat to social cohesion. They're not a threat to anyone who loves truth or goodness or integrity or purity, in fact, quite the opposite. But Philippi was a Roman colony that was hugely proud of their Roman status. The primary form of worship uh, was, or religion was the worship of the emperor cult. These were a proud people. And so seeing the damage that the gospel is going to do to their wallets, the slave girl owners stir up opposition through this misrepresentation and they present their charge in terms that appeal to nationalism, patriotism, civic pride, and a little bit of latent anti-Semitism thrown in for good measure. The crowd joins in the attack. The magistrates tore the garments off, gave orders to have them beaten with rods. And when they inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. How do we apply any of this? Well, I think firstly, we need to learn that when the gospel advances, we will face obstacles one of which will be satanic and spiritual. Secondly, that we can expect opposition to the advance of the gospel in this world. Thirdly, we can expect confusion, chaos, 
misrepresentation and false accusation along with the advance of the gospel. It will be messy. There will be blood. And fourthly, and maybe this is the main thing, don't be so naive when you think about the advance of the gospel. There are deep-rooted and vested interests at work that want to confuse and make false allegations when it comes to the truth of the gospel and making it plainly known in our schools, in our places of work, in our community, in our family, and the places where we live. Labeling and labels, maneuvering for social advantage is real. And so I wanna say, don't be naive. But I also wanna say, don't get caught up in it yourself. We too can fall into the same trap and then we're no different from the world around us. 2 Peter chapter one, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 12 says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Don't be naive. If the Christian gospel advances, and it will, the gospel is growing all over the world. Through proclamation, it will look messy. There will be other messages that try to confuse it. But we are called to continue to give ourselves fully to this world. We will be opposed, and in the world's eyes, we are of little status. But we must learn to take our eyes off the chains and the sores and the indignity and lift them to the risen Christ who is reigning from heaven, for we follow him. Fourthly, the gospel advances through divine intervention, verses 24 and 25. That is, expect God to work. To restore order really quickly, the magistrates have them stripped and beaten. Many stripes are laid on them. Uh, Paul and Silas uh, suffered that day physically and emotionally. Uh, they were treated as outcasts, demeaned, ignored, despised, deeply hurt. And don't forget that the Lord had sent them there. So on top of everything else, there would have been the spiritual pain uh, of, Lord, what are you doing here? Why have you brought me to this place? And there Paul is in jail, bleeding in pain. And at midnight, which is about the time of day when my fears would begin to overwhelm me, what happens? I mean, how would you write that story as you lie in jail, bloody, bleeding in the stocks? Well, verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. They were singing and praying and proclaiming the gospel in the midst of all of this. And while the prisoners are listening to them, suddenly there's this great earthquake and the foundations of the prison are shaken and immediately all the doors are open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Now the skeptics among us, uh, of whom you might be one, may think this is editorial license, Luke needed some dramatic flair, or maybe the earthquake was just pure coincidence. But indulge me for a moment. In every other part of Luke's writing, he records the events with extraordinary historical accuracy, with impeccable attention to detail. On a number of occasions, Luke uses material from other authors in his writings. When he does this, we can check against those sources to see his precision, a precision that would make a Swiss watchmaker envious. His integrity in handling his sources is above reproach. 
He does the same thing when he records history or geography. And in this incident, everything that he records represents what we know about the Roman world. So we could simply ignore the earthquake and move on, but in the book of Acts, we find God working over and over again, deliberately and supernaturally, to ensure that his truth, the truth about his son, the truth about his son in his gospel prevails. Did I tell you where Philippi was? Does anybody know geographically where Philippi is located? Do you know what the story of Acts 16 is really about? The story of Acts 16 is the, the day that the gospel arrived in Europe. Most, if not all of us, owe our gospel lineage to this day. As it breaks new ground here in mainland Europe, it should not surprise us to find God acting in power supernaturally to ensure the advance of the gospel. We find this all over the book of Acts and time does not permit me to go into it. Uh, but here with this earthquake, God uh, intervenes. Now God doesn't always intervene. Uh, Stephen was stoned to death, Paul was beaten and shipwrecked, James was put to death by the sword, likely beheaded, but in his time, as he wished, God did intervene in the advance of the gospel, demonstrating that it is clearly a work of God to ensure that the gospel of Jesus and the kingdom of God was established in Europe. And God is still doing that today. And so here is the challenge for us. Do I really believe that God is at work in power in his world? Do I actually believe that God is intricately involved in a supernatural way to ensure the advance of his gospel about his king and his kingdom throughout the world? Now I'm not saying, and don't hear me say this, I'm not saying that we should expect earthquakes. angels or visions every few days. You and I are not the Apostle Paul and we are not planting the first church on a new continent. The normal way that God works is through the normal, natural, God-given laws and norms of physics without which we would be unable to do anything in this world. And it would be a strange thing for God having set the world up this way to always be meddling and tinkering However, it should not surprise us to find God divinely ordering events and acting in this world in order to enable and ensure the advance of the gospel as he wishes when he wants. Fifthly and finally, the gospel advances through the determined resolve of those who trust the gospel to make it known. If you have time this afternoon over lunch or at some point this week, maybe tomorrow, just track Paul through the story. Look at Paul's resolve with Lydia as he resolutely is determined to share the gospel. Look at Paul with the slave girl as he is resolved to clear up the confusion of the message. Look at Paul in jail at night singing praise and proclaiming salvation to the prisoners. Look at Paul with the jailer in verse 27. When the jailer woke up and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul said in a loud voice, do not harm yourself, we are all here. 
And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in, trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas, and then he brought them out and said, what must I do to be saved? And Paul gives a one-sentence sermon, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. And then he spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all his house, verse 32. And then we have this really interesting story where uh, the magistrates come the next day and uh, say, look, you're free to go. And he says, verse 37, uh, they've beaten us publicly. They've condemned men who are Roman citizens. They've thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let themselves come and take us out. And we might think, is Paul just being, um, is Paul being difficult? Uh, is Paul just like standing on his rights? What's he going for here? No. Even here, Paul doesn't make this about himself. He makes it about the gospel and the gospel and the gospel. And so you have this strange situation at the end of his time in Philippi because Paul wants to clear up any confusion that might exist that surrounds the gospel. I will stay and explain the gospel to my captor because this person needs the gospel too and I will not just walk out of the prison without confronting these people because I want the gospel to be clearly defended and people to go on proclaiming the gospel here in Philippi. And that was how the gospel advanced and was established in Philippi and Europe and beyond. And like Paul, it calls us to a determined resolve to continue proclaiming the gospel. Let me bring this all together with one final thought. I don't know if you get asked this question a lot. Uh, I seem to encounter it every time I meet anybody. How are you? How was your week? Answers always vary, busy, tired, full, healthy, fast, hard, stressful. I wonder if it's time to be a little bit more thoughtful about our answers to these questions. If we really are gospel people and we really do believe that the gospel is growing in this world. I wonder if it's time, at least for me, after spending these weeks in Acts 16, I'm striving to change my answer. My new answer is going to be, I am expecting. You might get strange looks and you might have to clarify your answer a little bit, but I for one am expecting God to work, to work out the advance of the gospel. I'm expecting that the advance of the gospel will probably be unimpressive, that the advance of the gospel will be messy, confusing, and that I will be misrepresented. But above all, I am expecting divine intervention. I am expecting that God will in fact shine the light of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ into dark hearts and that he will accomplish his work of salvation and my resolve to partake in the work of the Lord is fueled by the promise that it is never done in vain. And so let me ask you, are you expecting? Will you, like Paul, respond to the leading of the Spirit of Jesus to take the gospel of Jesus to places where it will be opposed and misrepresented? And above all, will you trust God to work as you proclaim his word of salvation to the people that God has put in your life? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that this is your word and that your word accomplishes your work. Help us, Lord, to give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord and to rest in the promise that the work of the Lord is never done in vain. And this we ask for Christ's sake. Amen.